0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Liz just read, Ecclesiastes chapter three, one through fifteen. Those of you tuning in right now downstairs and at home, if you would do likewise, Ecclesiastes three, one through fifteen. As we we turn now to this well-known passage of Scripture, Amy Golds and I were trying to get Liz to sing part of this passage for us, but she wasn't having that. And maybe some of you all recognize that, that famous song from the birds, Turn, 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 right? I remember when I was a kid, I, I read Ecclesiastes 3. I guess I was a teenager around the time that I read this for the first time. But I had heard the song first by the birds. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. So when I, I read Ecclesiastes 3, I was like, Wow! This is in the Bible! God wrote a pop song! And it's good. How cool is that? You know, whenever I read the Psalms, you know, as I work through the Psalms, these great songs come to mind. This is fresh in my mind because, you know, Sonia and Alistair and I were working through the Psalms for morning devotions together. So inevitably, after we work through a Psalm, we start to sing something, a hymn or something for my youth. Something comes and we, we're, I'm singing, singing these songs, these worshipful songs, Well, I'll just tell you, when I read Ecclesiastes, the songs that come to mind are, let's just say, less than worshipful songs. You know, the the secular songs I used to listen to, like, Turn, 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 The Birds. I've been singing songs all week after studying Ecclesiastes 3. I've been singing Steve Miller Band. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. I've been singing this other song from my high school days. It's a song called Time by Hootie and the Blowfish. Y'all know that song? Time, why you punish me? I love that song. I wanted to sing like Darius Rucker when I was in high school. That cool, gravelly voice. I didn't have it. And that's an interesting song. It's what kind of want to intro this message with today because if you if you listen to that song if you really study it the the tone of it is very similar to ecclesiastes 3 it's it's less positive than turn 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 that bird song because here's what they write time why do you punish me like a wave bashing into the shore you wash my dreams away how dare you time can you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow running free. You know, when Solomon's, this message is about time, and and Solomon's talking about time here, and when he's talking about it, he's not, just so you know, he's not talking about the wonderful aspects of time and how time turns and how it's so fluid and things just move forward so beautifully. I mean, there's an aspect of that, but really what he's saying, what, what Solomon is frustrated by is that time keeps marching on. There's a cyclical nature to it, and it, it punishes us, and, and it's after us, and we're running, we're running out of time. Our clock is ticking, and, and, and time is like this dark cloud that hovers over us. That's the tone of Ecclesiastes. I read this last week, a quote from the Roman playwright, Plautus. He wrote about the tyranny of time, and he cursed the person who invented the sundial. I mean, this is kind of dated, right? but he said this. He said, "May the gods confound the man who first find out how to distinguish ours. Confound him who has cut and hacked my days so wretchedly into small pieces. Confound him, who has put in this place a sundial. Wow, you know, goodness. I wonder what he would think about like an iWatch or, you know, a a Fitbit or something, you'd probably rip it off your hand and smash it. And I think he's he's getting at something here. I think there's some corollaries there with what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes, humans have this complicated relationship with time. And that's because time under the sun, right, we're talking about under the sun, time under the sun is finite. We're running out of time. It's like a dark cloud that hangs over us. So what are we going to do about that? How do we cope with that? Is time something to dread? Should we dread it? The passage of time. Can we control it? Can we beat it? Can we beat time? Can we escape time? And here's what I want to end with today. I'm going to answer all these questions today. But what I really want to get at Is how do we redeem the time that we have under the sun? How do we make the most of the days that we have here under heaven? So those are the questions I want to address this morning from the text. But let's do this first. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. The message this morning is entitled The Tyranny of Time. And I want to make three statements, three summary statements about time in this message. Here's the first. Time under heaven... Time in this Genesis 3 world, time under heaven, is beautiful but cyclical. It's beautiful but cyclical. Solomon writes in verse 1, for everything there is a season. I'm not going to sing it. A time for every matter under heaven. And notice that sev- statement in verse 1, under heaven. I mean, that's, this is under heaven thinking. This is under the sun thinking here. God lives outside of time. He's not affected by time. Time. So, so we gotta reckon with that. Keep that in mind as we're, we're reading this passage. Also, you know, you need to know that time is not something that's a product of the fall. I think we get that mistaken as well. There was time, there were seasons in Genesis 1 and 2. There were. But it was a pre fall reality for us as human beings. There there are even hints in the book of Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that there will still be time passing then and seasons. So factored into our existence in eternity. And I say that all just to let you know, time is not intrinsically evil, okay? It's, it's morally neutral, time. But time has been altered negatively by the fall. It's been impacted by our sin and by death. And so we realize now that our time on earth is limited. And so that's, that's where Solomon starts in the Genesis 3 world, there is a time to be born and there's a time to die. The, the two ends of human life. There's a time to be born and there's a time to, be, time to die. Wasn't that great when your kids were born? Wasn't that the greatest day of your life? When your daughter was born? When your son was born? Did, weren't you so happy? I mean, they weren't happy. They were miserable. They were kicking and screaming, literally. And so were you when you were born into this world. But but didn't that put a smile on your face? Seeing them born, seeing them come into this world, what a happy moment for us. I mean, my, my dad shed tears of joy for me when I was born. I did the same when my son was born. But but here's what Solomon's getting at here. For every great joy in this world, there is a corresponding sorrow. For every birth, there's a death. There's a time for life, there's a time for death in this Genesis 3 world there's a time to plant look at verse 2 there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted and alan white said amen to that there's time for both of those things to to sow and to harvest look at verse 3 there's a time to kill and a time to heal There's a time to break down and a time to build up. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. If I can say it this way, there's there's a time for a wedding and there's a time for the funeral. Both of those. That's what verse four I think is is alluding to here. And I I know a thing or two about those two things because I'm a pastor. I'm involved in that. And and there's a time for dancing. There's a time for rejoicing. There's, weddings are great. There's celebration. And yet at the same time, there's a time to mourn. There's a time for sadness. Life has its ups and downs. Life has its joys and its sorrows. Life keeps churning on and on and on. And it's beautiful, this passage of time, but it's ominous because... It's, it's this cycle under heaven that comes after us. Because for every wedding, there's a funeral, you know? Actually, just in terms of statistics, there's two funerals for every wedding. You know, I do twice as many funerals as I do weddings because in a wedding, two people get married. In a funeral, typically one person gets buried. How's that? There's a time to cast away stones. Verse 5. And there's a time to gather stones together. This is a statement about punishing and and not punishing. There's a time to seek retribution, and there's a time to seek peace. Gather stones, cast stones. There's a time to embrace, verse 5, and a time to refrain from embracing. This last statement in verse 5 is probably a euphemism for sex. There's a time for celibacy, and there's a time for intimacy. We know that from Solomon's other book, Song of Songs. Don't awaken love until it's time. There's a time to keep, verse 6. Sorry, there's a time to seek, and there's a time to lose. There's a time to keep, and a time to cast away. Warren Wiersbe calls, verse 6, the biblical justification for garage sales right here. There's a time to give stuff away, and to stop hoarding stuff. There's a time to tear and a time to sew. There's a time to keep silence. I don't like that. I'm an extrovert. And there's a time to speak. It's a time to keep silent. I've had to l- learn that as an extrovert. Some of you introverts are like, that's easy. You just do it. Well, there's also a time to talk, introverts. There's a time to say stuff. And one of the things that you have to learn as a leader in the church is, Probably one of the hardest lessons is when to talk and when to not talk and be silent. That's a sign of maturity. There's wisdom here. There's a time to love and a time to hate, verse 8. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. You know, sometimes you've got to make war to protect the interests of your nation. And only an idealist would think in this Genesis 3 world that, that there's never a time for war. But there's also a time for peace. And only a fool and only a warmonger would perpetually seek conflict with other people or with other nations. There's a time for both of those things. So so here we go. Let's just summarize verses 1 through 8 here. You have all of these antitheses. You have all of these kind of statements that are kind of this and that. It's like a combination of you've got all these and you've got all this. You've got all of the thises. You've got all the that's. And all of this has this poetic quality to it. It's beautiful what's written here and you might be tempted to think, oh, what a sweet little cute poem. What a wonderful sweet poem. Is it time for this and time for that? Well, Solomon just yanks the rug out from under you because look how he ends this poem with with this existential question. What's the point of all all of this is what he's asking. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? So after all that, you know, this, this... Verse 9, that question just kind of takes the air out of your balloon. What's he saying there? He's saying, yes, time is varied, time is beautiful, but it's also endlessly cyclical, it's toilsome, it's frustrating, the world keeps turning on and on with good and with bad and with stuff in between, and here's the real rub, here's what really bothers Solomon as he's talking here. All these things are outside of human control. God is ultimately in control of these things. He's identifying here that there's a power in this world that's greater than him, that's controlling these forces, that he can't stop. And and what's the point of all the toil that we have in light of that, that the world keeps marching on? So time under heaven is beautiful but cyclical. Here, write this down as number two in your notes. Here's, Here's where he goes next with his argument Time under heaven, praise God, is eclipsed by eternity. So time under heaven is beautiful and cyclical, but time under heaven is also eclipsed by eternity. Solomon asks in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? And he answers the question in verse 10, but it's, it's not as cynical as you might have figured because he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And what about it? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everybody see that in verse 11? It kind of softens the tone right there. I've noticed, and I'm trying to keep an eye out for this as I'm working through Ecclesiastes, whenever Solomon mentions God, his his mood softens. It's like all the cynicism just kind of spills out of him, and he gives a perspective that's good and wholesome and God-honoring. And, and I, I see that here. All of a sudden, God shows up. He mentions God. He didn't talk about God a whole lot in chapters 1 and 2 and all. And now he says it's beautiful. God has made everything beautiful. And time, here's the analogy that came to mind. I was thinking about this. You know, it's, it's, it's like King Saul. If you remember King Saul, he was a grumpy king who had a, a bad spirit inside of him. And whenever he had this bad spirit come over him, the, you know, the boy David would play the harp and it, it would soothe him. I kind of see something similar here. You know, the old man Solomon is real cynical. He mentions God and it just kind of eases the cynicism inside of him and he softens his mood. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, he says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. The point of this yes, God is in control, God is controlling all these things, even time, and, and God is making it beautiful. God is making everything beautiful in its time. He's making everything beautiful. Everything. What does your Bible say? Does it say some things or does it say everything? What's it say? Help me out there, verse 11. He has made what? Everything. Everything in your life beautiful in its time. I mean, you might ask, like... How is this thing in my life beautiful that happened? This is really the Old Testament equivalent of Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is, this is the Old Testament version of that. So you might ask, well, does God make all the suffering in our world beautiful? Yes, he does. And yes, he will. And it's time. Does God, does God make my heartache beautiful, that thing I went through? That that the loss of that loved one, my broken marriage, my, my un, the, the ungodly attacks of my enemies on me. Does God make that beautiful? Yes, God makes that beautiful in, in its time, in his time, in his perfect timing. He's going to use that for good. God will take it and God will work it. Even the harder parts, the killing, the healing, the weeping, the laughing, the war and the peace, the love and the hate, all of it. And he will make it beautiful in its time. I think the greatest example of this, let's just go right to the greatest example of this. And I'll ask you a question. What is the worst thing that has ever happened in human history? What is the worst thing that we've ever done as humans? We took, a, we took an innocent man, the God man, God in the flesh. We took this innocent man who had never sinned and we, we humiliated him. And we brutalized him and we crucified him on a cross. Worst thing that's ever happened in the history of our world. Can I ask you another thing, though? What's the best thing that has ever happened in the history of our world? The crucifixion of that Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Why? How could that be beautiful? Because God has used that to pay for our sins. He, he, has, he has taken all things and made them Beautiful. Even that, even that horrible thing, because all things work for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And if you, if you think about it in your own life, I've been thinking about that this last week, like, well, I mean, I, I've had some hard things happen in my, how are those beautiful? And if you stop and think, I bet, if you look at the transformative moments in your your life, you'll, you'll say these, these bad things, these hard things, God has made them beautiful. God has used them for a good purpose. I, I had three that came to mind. I just wrote them out this last week. When I blew up my knee at age 16 playing basketball. When I broke up with my girlfriend at age 20. When I lost the job of my dreams at age 28. You know, I mean, those, I those things were incredibly painful in my life. I was looking through my... Actually, I did a study on Ecclesiastes in a small group. And I was looking through my notes in that small group. And I, I wrote down those three things as the hardest things that I went through in life. And yet at the same time, those are the most formative, the most important, the most, can I say it, beautiful things that God did. I don't want to go through them again, but God used them to break me and to make me into the man that he wanted me to be and to bring about even a greater thing than I was expecting in that moment. God makes everything beautiful in his time. And I, and I look back on some of those events in my life and I say, thank God for unanswered prayers. Thank you, God. You know? Garth Brooks was right. <laughs> Praise God for unanswered prayers. Here's another aspect of that. Not only does God make everything beautiful in its time, he also uses the painful experiences of this world to point us to eternity. Look at verse 11. This verse is a blockbuster. Underline this whole verse in your Bible. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put what into man's heart? What does your Bible say? God has put eternity into man's heart. The Hebrew word for this is olam, and it means everlasting, or it means forever. God has put forever into man's heart. This sense of of something beyond time in our current existence, something beyond verses 1 through 8, and that's cycle. God has put it in our hearts, beyond the living and the dying and the reaping and the sowing and the laughing and the crying and the killing and the healing. There's, we know we know in our heart of hearts, don't you? Don't you now? We know there's something more than this. There's something more than this life. There's, there's something coming. There's, there's, there's something beyond us. And it, it's a God of eternity and it's an eternal life for us. We know it. The great Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, he said it this way. You can read this on the screen. He said, we belong to one set of existences by our bodies and to another by our souls. Though we are parts of the passing material world, yet in that outward frame is lodged a personality that has nothing in common with decay and death, a spark of eternity dwells in these fleeting frames. We know that. You know, last week I quoted C.S. Lewis, and I told you with that quote that he wrote that as an atheist. That quote from last week when he was angry at God. Well, here's a quote from him after he became a Christian. And here's what Lewis says about this thing inside of our hearts. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know what, that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us, which we, when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. Lewis called this longing for eternity. He called it this inconsolable longing that's inside of it. So maybe that's what led him to Christ. He said this. He says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable An unappeasable want, eternity, eternity in our hearts, this longing. He also said this, Lewis is so good at this. If you read Lewis, he just taps into this thing inside of us, this, this metaphysical search for transcendence. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Great Jewish scholar Abraham and Ezra, he said that God made humans to desire eternity or at least to imagine that we will live forever. You know, and that would be a cruel joke on us if God just put it in us to imagine that we're going to live forever, but we're not really. No, we, we know. I knew before I read Ecclesiastes 3.11. I knew before I ever read C.S. Lewis. I knew there was something inside of me that said there's something more. There's an eternity. There's something, on, there's something going on outside of yourself. It can't end with you. It can't end with this world, Tony. And I think that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God right? If I can link back to Genesis 1 and 2, you are an image bearer. Men and women both. You are image bearers. Part of that is that your, your soul, your psyche, your being has been stamped with eternity. You have it in you. You have a longing for it. You want it. You want something. And, and sometimes you don't even know how to articulate what you want. Something beyond this world. And, and let me just illustrate this with Stay with me here, okay? Can I talk about my cats for a moment? I haven't done this in a while. Can I mention my cats? Just, just give me a little latitude this morning as I talk about my cats. I got two cats, Tzitzi and Boss, And I, I'll just tell you, because I know them pretty well, and I know the Bible, too. Neither of them have ever had a cogent thought in their entire lives about the afterlife. Never. All they care about is the next trip to the food bowl. All they care about is going outside to hunt some mice. They never think about afterlife. And that's probably good because there is no afterlife for them. Are y'all with me? And, And just to be clear... You know, when your dog Sparky dies, he's going in the ground and it's over. All right? Are we clear about that? He is not an image bearer. I'm sorry, but Disney lied to you again. <laughs> all dogs do not go to heaven. It's really formative for me, and parents take a moment to teach your children this. I remember being five years old. I've told this story before. My little dog Bobo died when I was five. And I was broken. I was devastated. And my parents, bless their heart, they took us to this little hill in Austin, Texas and buried that dog. He got hit by a car, and they buried him. I, I mean, I know, I know the hill. I know where it is even now. I could take you to it. And we buried that dog in the hill, and I, and I cried. And, and my parents took that moment to say, Son, just so you know, You will live for eternity somewhere. Bobo, not so much. And and I was broken by that. What a great teaching moment. Why is that? Because Bobo's not made in the image of God. Your dog's not made in the image of God. My cats aren't made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. There is eternity inside of your hearts. You, You know it. And you long for it. And yet look at this. Look at verse 11 with me. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, God has put eternity into our hearts so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So not only has God placed in every human being this hunger, this seeking for eternity, he's placed it in there in such a way that we can't find it ourselves. We need his help to find it. I think this is a definitive statement about God's sovereignty and God's election. God is in sovereign control of our world. He puts a taste of heaven on our lips and a glimpse of divinity in our soul. But he doesn't give us the capacity in and of ourselves to experience it. Phil Reichen says this. You can read this on the screen. This is about verse 11. He says, Here the preacher finds himself caught between time and eternity. On the one hand, God has put eternity into our hearts. We were made to live forever, and thus we have a desperate longing for a never-ending life with God. But as finite creatures living in a fallen world, there are so many things we do not understand. No matter how hard we look, and the preacher king Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, had looked so hard, as hard as anyone, Yet we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is a really important point, theologically speaking, because theologians will differentiate be, between what's called general revelation and special revelation. I've covered this before, but let's just review here. There's general revelation, meaning that that we look out on our world, generally speaking, anybody can see I'm created I'm a created being there must be a creator look at these trees I didn't make those trees look look at these planets I didn't make those planets and and there's a sense of general revelation that that God exists there's a God in the in the the nature the world around us screams there's a creator there's a creator there's a creator pay attention even our hearts tell us there's a creator there's an eternity that's general revelation but We need, beyond that, special revelation to know what Christ did for us and to know how to be saved. We need special revelation. We need the gospel. We need the scriptures to know this. And I'll I'll give you a perfect example of this. The famous missionary, Don Richardson. He wrote about this in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts. He talks about how in all the cultures of the world, there's this longing for eternity. There's this thing inside of Homo sapiens, all of us. For something beyond this world, beyond this life. And so Richardson, he writes about the Inca king who rejected the sun god Enti in favor of an older and greater deity. The life-giving and merciful Viracocha who dwells in uncreated light. He talks about Karen, the people of Burma, who had a legend of a lost book that one day the supreme god would bring to them to set them free from oppression. And it was passed down from generations. Someday, people of the book will come. And he talks about the Diax people of Borneo who put their sins in this little boat and would sail it down the river. Put their sins in the boat, sail it down the river. He called it their scape boat. Sending it off. And sure enough, each of these people, they knew, they knew something about God. They knew something about God's plan They're, They had eternity in their hearts. They're just like us. They're homo sapiens. But they couldn't find out what God had done from beginning to the end. They needed special revelation, not just general revelation. They needed the scriptures. They needed the gospel that came with the missionaries that shared it with them. So time under heaven is beautiful but cyclical. Time under heaven is, praise God, eclipsed by eternity. And we know that instinctively. And then one more thing, write this down as number three. Solomon also tells us that time under heaven is fleeting and yet it's to be enjoyed. Time under heaven is fleeting and it's to be enjoyed. Look at verse 12, watch how Solomon now Pivots after that blockbuster verse, verse 11 He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them Than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live In other words, your time is short Seasons come and seasons go And eternity is racing towards you So make the most of your life JFK said once, we must use time as a tool, not as a couch Get to work. Do something. Use your life for something purposeful. Solomon says here, we must use our time for good and not evil. Solomon says, time is short, so don't, don't stress out about it. Be joyful and enjoy life. You know, it's kind of it's surprising coming from Solomon. We see that nothing is better than to be joyful. Actually, that's kind of rich coming from him because he's kind of a grump in chapters 1 and 2. Now he's saying there's nothing better than being joyful, than doing good over evil. Don't worry, be happy. Do as much good as you can in this life. Joyfully. That, that do good statement is, it kind of catches you off guard. Like, okay, time is short. It, cyclical thing going on. Do good. Use your life for something meaningful. Because eternity's coming towards you. I heard Tommy Nelson say this last week. He was preaching on this topic, and he said to his congregation When I do your funeral someday, give me something I can say. Give me something I can work with so I don't have to make up something about you. Can I just echo that? When I do your funeral, give me something to say. You know, and, and by the way, just for the record, I'm not going to make up stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you live a life that's full of goodness and, and God-fearing and joy. You ever been to a funeral, men or women, both? I mean, you go to a funeral to this person, there's grief and there's mourning, but there's also the joy. You know, you ever been to a funeral like that at, at, a sense of a life well lived. This person lived their life well and they died, yes, and we're sad, but praise God, they lived a good life. You ever been to a funeral like that? Make your funeral like that someday so the preacher doesn't have to make up stuff about you. So they, they have to turn it off like, okay, we got to go home. We can't keep talking about this person. That's the kind of life you want to live. Look what Solomon says in verse 13. Even though life is short, even though eternity is coming, he also says, everyone should eat. Amen to that. And drink. And take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Praise God I have a job. Do you ever say that on Monday morning? Or is it, ho-hum, I'm off to work? Praise God I have a job. Praise God I have hands to use for work. Praise God I have a brain to crunch these numbers. Praise God I have a strong back to lift heavy stuff. For now, anyway. Praise God for that. Praise God for food and drink. Y'all with me? Can I get an amen on that? Praise God for food. Praise God that we can enjoy it. I mean, have you, I've had this moment. Have you ever had a moment like this? I've had a moment several in my life where I have taken a bite of a luscious piece of cake or a perfectly seasoned piece of meat and I said, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Ryan's had a moment like that. Y'all ever had a moment like that? I'm just doing what the Bible says here, okay? Eat, drink, and, and work, and enjoy life. Listen, when I first tasted my wife's cooking, okay? Can I tell you about this? When we were dating, I said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Do you want to spend the next half century with me? <laughs> can I put a ring on that finger? There's, a, there's, When you wake up in the morning, you drink coffee. Praise God for that. Drink it to the glory of God. This is so practical This is super practical Some of y'all know We've been talking about this in my small group Just how to praise God and thank God for the little things in life And not be pessimistic or cynical And so I was thinking about this last week Because I've had this injury I hurt my hamstring playing basketball And it was like black And so I couldn't play basketball for a month And I I was kind of down about it Like maybe this is the end You know Maybe I'm too old for basketball. Maybe I need to take up golf, you know, and then I started to cry. I don't like golf. <laughs> but I, I started to rehab my hamstring, and I got it going again. And this last Friday, I went to the Decatur Athletic Center, and I played basketball, and I just ran up and down the court. And I, I wish you could see the smile on my face as I just ran up and down the court just enjoying the body that god had given me for a little bit longer you know and, and the joy of that i felt like tom brady playing a game for kids out with for kid, you know with kids out there doing something i'm too old to do and it, and there's there's a joy in that and 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 you know the perfectly executed layup and the perfectly executed jump shot and the sound of the swish as the ball goes through the net. You'll have any idea what I'm talking about. And it's so good to just enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Let's talk about coffee. That's not all about basketball. I love getting up in the morning and getting a hot cup of coffee and sitting in my chair and reading God's word can i enjoy that is that okay i i love reading a good book anybody with me on that preferably a book on history or theology sometimes fiction i love watching a good movie with my wife with my son I love listening to good music. You know, preferably from the late 1900s, back when music was good. Can I do that? Can we do that? Can we enjoy the good gifts that God has given us? Yes, we can. My wife likes to make stuff with her hands, that's her labor. I like to write sermons, I like to preach. Some of you up here using your instruments Use it for God's glory, praise God Do that, toil for God Enjoy the gifts that God has given you The work he's given you I can't stand when people turn Christianity into something legalistic And dull and boring and joyless That is not the Christianity That I've experienced I don't want to live life like a monk in a monastery Subsisting on bread and water Solomon says here that there's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as we live, to eat and drink and take pleasure in our toil. Why? Because this is God's gift to man. And then look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God endures, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people... Fear before him. In other words, God is sovereign and you are not. God's stuff, God's work is going to last forever and yours is not. So we should adore him and we should worship him. And we should fear before him. Remember how this book ends? Do you remember Ecclesiastes 12? The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty, the whole duty of man. We've been trying to memorize that as our, in my small group, and I almost have it. Just trying to keep that verse, that passage in our minds as we're working through Ecclesiastes. Fear God. Obey his commandments. Augustine said once, fear God and do whatever you want. In other words, if you fear God, then everything else will fall into line. I think, I think that's a great paraphrase for this passage. Fear God and do whatever you want. Enjoy life. Verse 15, that which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. There's that cyclical thing again and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, God's work lasts forever. May his name be praised. And let me add to that, only our work that's done for God and for God's glory will last forever. Only one life. Harvest the Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Time under heaven is beautiful but cyclical. It's eclipsed by eternity, it's fleeting. And yet it's to be enjoyed. close with this. Let me go back to Eternity in Their Hearts. Verse 11. I mentioned already a missionary named Don Richardson. He wrote that book, Eternity in Their Hearts, based on Ecclesiastes 3.11. Well, Richardson wrote another book called The Peace Child. Great book. Great book. Go read it. It's about cannibalistic headhunters that want to CUT OPEN HIS HEAD AND EAT HIS BRAINS. GO HOME AND READ IT TO YOUR KIDS, THEY'LL LOVE IT. (laughs) Richardson, Don Richardson, he was a missionary that went to Papua New Guinea, and he went to these people who had no written language, they had no record of anything. They lived basically in the Stone Age. They knew nothing of the outside world. And seriously, their greatest goal when he came to them was to kill him, cut off his head, and eat his brains. They were cannibalists. That's what they wanted to do. And Richardson was there, and he was there to share the gospel with them. I love it. I love this guy. And here's the thing. These people were so dark, so he stayed there, and he ministered to them, and he survived. You can read about it in the book. And he he even stayed there long enough to learn their language so he could communicate with them started learning the language and he's talking with them and he's telling them the story of the Bible he's telling them about Jesus and here's what happened he's telling them the story about Jesus and when they find out that this guy Judas betrayed Jesus they started applauding Judas <laughs> they, they thought this is the greatest thing in the world this guy betrayed his friend they loved it and they applauded that's how dark they were and Richardson wanted to give up on this people he said they're too far gone they can't receive the gospel. Eternity must not be in their hearts. But then he found this, this ritual that they had, that they enacted with their neighboring tribes. Because whenever they got tired of their warring and murdering and eating each other's brains, they would make, make peace with their neighboring tribes. And the way that they did this is they would send a peace child the son of the king, who was a few months old, an infant, they would send this child, this peace child, to the other tribe and to the other king of that tribe, and that king would raise that child as his own. And that gift, that gesture, would establish peace between the tribes, and they'd stop killing each other. And so when Richardson saw this, he said, what a what a perfect <laughs> analogy for the gospel. Eternity is in their hearts. They know something. And so Richardson started to explain to them that God had given his only son as a peace child for them so that they might have peace with the God who created them. And that peace child actually died as a sacrifice for their sins. And when Richardson did this, these tribes just started coming to Christ in mass, thousands of tribespeople. I mean, there's still evidence of his work today in Papua New Guinea. You can go find out about it, the Saui people. And they got saved in mass because one man took some time, learned their language, and he found that, that link, if you want to call it that, to the eternity inside of their hearts to lead them to Christ. Alexander McLaren, he said this, he said, Love Christ. Love Christ, and then the eternity in the heart will not be a great aching void, but it will be filled with the everlasting life with which Christ gives and which Christ is. God has put eternity into your heart's harvesticator. He's put that there. And you know what? You've got one life to live, and time is ticking. It's ticking. Live for God. Love God. Enjoy life. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given. Tell people about Jesus. Use the most of you can of the life that you have left. But let me just remind you, don't forget about this. Eternity is coming. Eternity is racing towards you. Make sure you're prepared for that. Make sure you're prepared for eternity. Pray with me now. Let's just search our hearts right now. Worship team's going to come, but please don't be distracted by them. If you're online, if you're listening to this, those of you in this room... There's something in you, there is, that knows, that knows that there's life beyond this life. You know that you were made for eternity. God has placed that inside of your heart. And the truth of the matter is that you will live somewhere. You will either live with the Lord Jesus or you will live apart from him for eternity. And God in his grace and the fullness of time sent his son to this world to enter into time and space to die on a cross to pay for your sin and your faith in that work, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, is your ticket to eternity. Is your hope for eternity? An eternity of peace without war. An eternity of laughing without weeping an eternity with Jesus. Put your faith in Christ. Tell the Lord right now in the quietness of your own soul, Lord, I believe. I believe in your death. I believe in your resurrection. I believe that you made a way for me to live forever with you. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. We are sinners saved by grace, Lord. We don't deserve to live forever with you. We deserve to live forever apart from you. And God, in your mercy for us, you made a way. You made a way for us to be saved. So, Lord, on behalf of Horace Decatur, I'm, I'm here to say thank you for that. and We can't wait for that day. We, we wish it would come soon. Lord, in the meantime, on the time that we have left in this world, Help us to live for you, love you, enjoy your good gifts, worship and adore you, Lord. May the time that we have left in life be well spent for your purposes, I pray. I pray in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.